If you have an announcement sheet, like this one, uh, on the back, you see our preaching schedule for session C, for uh, the parables. And uh, it outlines the dates, the, the preachers, and the passages of the topics of which the parables will be covered for these one, two, three, four, five, five weeks. And um, there should be one thing, if you look at this schedule, one thing should stand out to you. All right, any guesses? Any guesses? Uh, all the parables come out of the book of Luke. Luke. Uh, so we can technically modify the title of this series. Our wonderful shepherd, Chris G., told me today, like, mm, you know, you, we should call it a, a Luke into the parables. <laughs> Only in Chris G. fashion. I was just like, how do you come up with this stuff? And he was like, if you hang out with the people I hang out long enough, it happens. And so, in the spirit of our, of our shepherd, uh, let's Luke into the book of Luke. And we're going we're gonna to start from the beginning. So, if you'd open up to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1, uh, we're going to take what seems like a detour, starting from Luke chapter 1, and we're going to stop in various vistas along the way, um, leading up to our text for tonight. And I want you guys to pay attention to one overarching theme. There should be one theme that just should be obvious to you if you pay close attention to the texts that we'll take a peek at before we arrive at our text tonight. So Luke chapter 1, I'm just going to read. Have your fingers, have your eyes, have your ears, have your hearts ready, and we're just going to walk, power walk, speed walk through the gospel of Luke. So Luke chapter 1, we're going to start at verse 31 and read to verse 33. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Turn over to Luke chapter 3, verse 16. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John answered, John the Baptist, and said to them all, As for me, I baptize you with water. But one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to untie the thong of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to thoroughly clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Luke chapter 4. Verse 17 to 19, and then jump over to verse 43. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Jesus, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of the sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Verse 30, uh, 43, but he said to them, I must preach the kingdom of God to other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. A couple chapters over to Luke chapter 8, verse 9 and 10. His disciples began questioning him as to what this parable meant. And he said, to you it has been granted to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. But to the rest, it is in parables, so that seeing they may not see, and hearing 
they may not understand. Luke chapter 9, verse 10 and 11, and 23 to 27. When the apostles returned, they gave an account to him of all that they had done. Taking them with him, he withdrew by himself to a city called Bethsaida. But the crowds were aware of this and followed him. And welcoming them, he began speaking to them about the kingdom of God and curing those who, need, who had need of healing. Verse 23. And he was saying to them all, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. For what is a man profited if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? For whoever is ashamed of me in my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. But I say to you truthfully that there are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. Luke chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. It happened that while Jesus was praying in a certain place, after he had finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John also taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. Jump down to verse 17. But he knew their thoughts and said to them, Any kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and a house divided against itself falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? For you say that I cast out demons by Beelzebul. And if I by Beelzebul cast out demons, by whom do your sons cast them out? So they will be your judges. But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. A couple of more. Uh, Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 18 to 21. So he was saying, What is the kingdom of God like? And to what shall I compare it? It is like a mustard seed, which a man took and threw it into his own garden. And it grew and it became a tree, and the birds of the air nested in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven which a woman took and hid in three pecks of flour until all was leavened. Luke chapter 16, just one verse, verse 16. Jesus says, The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the gospel of the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is forcing his way into it. And our last text before our main text tonight, Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Now, having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So, what is the one theme that comes out in all these verses? You can say it the kingdom of God, thank you. Thank you. The kingdom of God. Uh, we begin looking at this specific theme um, because I want us to think and operate tonight under this specific context. Because when we're looking at uh, this parable and at this juncture of Jesus' ministry, uh, we understand that 
Jesus has set his face towards Jerusalem for the purpose of being crucified. And all the Synoptic Gospel accounts all have this flow to them where, where they po- at one point Jesus will set his face tr- to Jerusalem and to accomplish the purpose in which he has sent. And so all along the way in this travel narrative, uh, Jesus is using almost every opportunity he has to teach his disciples and any of those who would hear about the kingdom of God. And so for many of us, the kingdom of God can be a confusing concept, to say the least. Uh, from a simple reading of the gospel accounts, uh, we come to understand that the kingdom of God is not just simply eternal life. Okay? It's not simply eternal life spent in heaven with Jesus Christ and when he comes again. Um, so we know that when Jesus came the first time, he disappointed many people, many of the Jews. He disappointed them. The Jews were expecting Jesus to uh, restore the kingdom of Israel to its former glory back in the days of Solomon, to oust the Roman Empire and, and, uh, and bring, bring on full glory back to Israel, back again. Um, so we p- t- pick up hints and tidbits about the nature of the kingdom of God, but we come, also come to see at the end of the Gospels, this is not what Jesus does. And so Jesus talks about his kingdom, but he never fully ushers it in. But he gives analogies like this. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. The kingdom of God is like leaven. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And so how are we supposed to understand the kingdom of God? Um, if I was to give a succinct definition it would be something along uh, like this. Uh, The kingdom of God, where Jesus actively rules and reigns, is presently eminent and yet expectantly imminent. All right, let me say that again. The kingdom of God, where Jesus actively rules and reigns, is presently eminent, I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T, and yet expectantly imminent. I-M-M-I-N-E-N-T. Okay, so do you see the distinct difference there? Two words, one letter, changes everything. Um, So what this means is that the kingdom of God is uh, present and active among us right now. So right now, the kingdom of God, as Luke tells us, is in our midst. But at the same time, we as Christians, we expect a greater fulfillment and coming of the kingdom of God. Uh, We see that explained in Luke's gospel. Jesus explains that the kingdom has now broken into this present world system and it has begun to permeate, uh, invade uh, this broken and dying world. But at the same time, he promises that he will return and usher in his kingdom in full glory and he will actively rule and reign over it. And so his jurisdiction will be over all the earth and his physical kingdom of literal physical kingdom will encompass all of it, centered at Jerusalem. And so Jesus makes this a pretty big issue, as we've seen in, the, in Luke's gospel in his first advent, because in a sense, the kingdom has already come. How do we know that? Well, you guys, we are gathered here tonight. We're here to praise the Lord and hear his word preached. And that's not a normal coincidence. And so... Our text for tonight finds itself in this context. Jesus is speaking previously of his second coming, 
to fully usher in his kingdom, but he tells his disciples uh, in Luke 17, 20, verse 21, that the kingdom is already, for behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. So the kingdom is here, but it's not fully uh, yet realized, and you must wait. There's a sense of already here, but not yet. And so Jesus proceeds to give details about his second coming. You can read that on your own time if you wish. He'll explain what will happen afterwards. And now he gives us a pair of parables. Um, I think this pair of parables uh, is unique. Um, these two parables, amongst others, are only found in Luke's gospel. And I think that Luke, the gospel writer, includes them here at this specific point for a purpose. And I think he's demonstrating to his audience that uh, Jesus is going to return uh, and usher in a fully realized kingdom, and this is what we must do to prepare ourselves. Okay? Jesus is coming back, and now here's what you do. And so last week, uh, Jesse explained to us what the purpose of parables were, and I love how he defined it. He says, parables are an act of mercy to some, and yet an act of judgment to others. So, like we read earlier, parables are a winnowing fork. Uh, winnowing, a winnowing fork is to clear good wheat from bad wheat, and Christ uses it to separate those who are his and those who are not his. And so Jesus is showing his audience 2,000 years ago and to us today that to fully understand parables, you have to, you must, you must accept and believe in the one who speaks in them. Okay? And so this parable, this pair of parables will show us that. Um, one of the staffers, Tim Huang, will speak on the former parable uh, in a couple of weeks, the widow and the unjust judge. And so I'm not going to steal his thunder uh, tonight, but I just want you to, I want to draw your attention to one detail from this parable and the one that we'll be tackling tonight. So look at Luke chapter 18, verse 1. And then jump down to verse 9, okay? So Luke chapter 18, verse 1 says this. Now, he was telling them a parable to show that all times they ought to pray and not lose heart, okay? Get that? Verse 9. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. And so when we look at these two introductory phrases that Luke gives, uh, we notice that the audience is different. The audience is different. We see now he was telling them, and then we also see, and he also told this parable to some people who da 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 da. Them, if you remember in your elementary school English class, them is a pronoun. And so pronouns take the place of a noun. Good, good. Everyone took English here. And. <laughs> So we can tell from our context clues, and we can uh, use that to inform us what the referent is. So look at Luke 17, verse 22. And he said to the disciples, okay? And he said to the disciples. So we can be pretty confident that Jesus was just addressing the disciples. Luke says he's addressing them. We can be pretty sure that Jesus is still addressing the disciples, but let's look at verse 9, our introduction for tonight. Some people who trusted in themselves. So this is very descriptive and clear. Uh, Luke's not being, trying to be sly or hide 
who Jesus is really trying to talk to here. Uh, we see there are two different groups. They're probably congregated together in one big group because when Jesus was around, people wanted to see Jesus, not only his disciples, but other random people also. And so Jesus addresses the large group. He addresses them in two different parables, but we see that there's a, the contrast is obvious here. And so we can make a good assumption that these parables are packaged together. They, they come as one deal. You buy one, get one free. And you can also, if you read the first parable, and if you come back in two weeks, I hope you do, uh, when Tim Huang preaches on the first parable, you'll see that the two parables act as a foil to one another. A foil. Okay, not what you use to, to bake your chicken in, but something, what a foil means, it's to contrast two things. Two things are being contrasted here. We're seeing differences. Okay? So one parable addresses Jesus' disciples to encourage them and to give them hope. I'm sorry, Tim, but I spoiled it, okay? Uh, one is an act of mercy. Tonight's parable addresses those who think that they do not need to follow Jesus, uh, but they can trust in themselves. And this is an act of judgment. And so all of this is spoken in the context of God's kingdom and answers the question, how then is one supposed to conduct themselves in the kingdom of God before Christ returns and the kingdom is fully realized? And so for this latter parable, uh, I would argue that we conduct ourselves with a humble attitude towards God and the one he has sent. We prepare ourselves for the kingdom by humbling ourselves and continue to stay humble before God and the one, Christ, whom he has sent. And so with that introduction, let's jump into the parable. Luke chapter 18, verse 9, and I'll read down to verse 17, but we'll be covering up to 14. And he also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and viewed others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray one a Pharisee, and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, and I pay tithes to all that I get. But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And they were bringing even their babies to him so that he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking them. But Jesus called for them, saying, Permit the children to come to me, and do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter at all. Thus reads the words of our God. And so let's look at the introduction, verse 9. 
this introduction reminds us that there are much to be learned from negative examples in life. Uh, Luke gives us a commentary, an insight, uh, if you would, into the thought process of Jesus at the time. It gives us an inside, inspired, and errant look at what Jesus was trying to do. Um, since we established the fact already that this is the second part of the package deal, uh, we also know uh, what, and, and we also know what a parable is. And let's look at the intended audience. So notice what Luke is not saying. He does not say, and he also told this parable to some Pharisees. And he doesn't say, and he also told this parable to the teachers of the law. And so we can tell that the categorization is broad. It's very broad. Um, and we can interpret this in either two ways. Luke is subtly jabbing at the Pharisees. And because to us, this, the Pharisees were the most obvious group uh, in this categorization. Or we can interpret it this way. He is purposefully being broad to cast a wide of a net as possible. So those who weren't Pharisees, those who weren't teachers of the law, those who were just the normal Joe Schmoes of society. And I think it's the latter view, because if the former was true, uh, much of this parable's oomph would lose its power, in a sense. And so there are two characteristics that, of Luke's intended audience, and it really describes Jewish society well. Um, they think that by having the law and by having Abraham as their father, uh, that the Jews were inherently good people. We have Yahweh on our side. We have the law. So we must naturally be righteous. And we just follow these rules, we'll be A-okay. And so not just the Pharisees, but normal Jews have developed methods to follow the law. Um, and in, do, in, in so doing, they have missed the point of their law entirely. Um, they've missed the point that their law, the summation of the whole law, was to love God and to love their neighbor. They were to love God with their hearts, their souls, their minds, and their strength, and they were to love their neighbors as themselves. And so understand that the social strata of Jewish society is not as diverse as today. Um, today we have a wide range of very lower class, lower class, middle class, upper middle class, you know, the 1%, so on and so forth. But in Jewish society, it was quite polar. You were either clean or you were unclean. Um, you were either in the normal group of people who conducted themselves, went to the temple, prayed, so on and so forth, obeyed the law, or you were in the outcast group, the people where you just don't associate with, the prostitutes, the thieves, the tax collectors. You don't associate with these people. And so there wasn't much in between. You were either in the normal people group, part of the covenant community of God, or you were not because you violated the law. And so to trust themselves that they were righteous and view others with contempt is actually quite normal in Jewish culture. And so Jesus you know, finishes speaking on being faithful in prayer as you wait for his return. And so you can imagine that the disposition, the general disposition of his audience is probably pretty positive. Um, so when Luke or Jesus introduces this parable, um, the response should be something along the lines of, 
okay, so Jesus must now be uh, commending those who persevere in keeping the law, right? We see two people. And so let's unpack Jesus' words together. Verse 10. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And so from the first sentence, just in one sentence, we see a dichotomy. We see a man who is a Pharisee and a man who is a tax collector. Uh, Christ, being the master craftsman storyteller that he is, he chooses the setting to just immediately drive a wedge between these two guys. All right, so these two men are from, like, I, like we've already heard, that they're from entirely opposite poles of society. And they go up to the most sacred place in Jewish culture to offer prayers to their most sacred God. And so just imagine the thoughts of the hearers. What would it be like hearing Christ's words, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector? Um, the knee-jerk reaction would be like, the Pharisee I understand, but oh man, a tax collector, what is Jesus going to say about these guys? And why in the world would, be a ta- would a tax collector be here? So the Pharisee makes sense. He's part of the most pious movement in recent Jewish history. Uh, he's a part of a group, you can call them fundamentalists, but they went back to the basics. They went back to following the law, keeping the law, doing what it takes to keep the law. You know, we must hold, uphold the law that they say, and let's do things that will help us accomplish this purpose. And so when people see a Pharisee go up the temple to pray, um, it makes sense. Pay no mind. Go about your business. And they think, oh yeah, God's going to hear his prayers, I hope. He's doing well. Cool. Then we have the tax collector. Um, To be brief, in the eyes of the Jewish community, this is probably one of the most undesirable jobs you can have. Um, For the Jew, to be a tax collector, you must be extremely greedy or extremely desperate because you need the money. Or you're both. Or you're both. Um, because what, essentially what you're doing is you're betraying your people to be the lapdog to the Romans. And so normally in Jewish society, tax collectors, if they really wanted to pray to God, if you know, like their conscience is seared and they want to pray to God, they wouldn't even get to the base. If the temple's right here, they wouldn't even like get to the base of the temple. They'd just stand at the base you know, and pray their thing and quickly scuttle away. And so, you know, you can imagine what, what people would be saying when they see a tax collector walking up the hill, Mount Zion, to offer prayers to God. Uh, you can imagine the tax collector's shame and embarrassment. You can hear the almost audible whispers of the people talking about the guy and what he's doing. And so Jesus, in a straightforward way, sets up the scene and the people hearing it would, would, would be wrestling with feelings of admiration and approval for the Pharisee, like, great guy, and feelings of disgust, disapproval. like, oh, man, we're going to talk about these guys. I hope Christ, I hope this Jesus guy rips him a new one. 
And so if you lived in that society and you saw the tax collector going up to the temple, you would, as all millennials would say, you would SMH. You would SMH. So let's hear what the Pharisee has to say for himself. Let's hear, what is this Pharisee? Pharisee's up at bat first. What does Jesus have to say about the Pharisee? Verse 11 and 12. The Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. It is customary for Jews to pray standing up. Uh, Don't let this distract you from the fact that this prayer is heinous and it is two-faced. Jesus perfectly describes what the Pharisees are about in these two sentences. And I just hope that whenever you read these two verses, you're just naturally uncomfortable. There's just something about this where it's just like, ooh, like, it just feels wrong. Why? Why does this make us uncomfortable? Uh, Let's, well, initially, let's count how many times he uses the word I. God, I thank you that I am not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Five times in two sentences, talking about himself. Um, The grammar of the sentence reveals even more how heinous this is. Um, If you look at the the I and the verb that precedes it, what do you see? I thank, I am, I fast, I pay, and I get, in a sense. Um, All this is in the present tense. It is the uh, the Pharisee doing the action, and what he's trying to indicate is like, this is an ongoing lifestyle of mine. This is what I do. I do this. And and, this, and he thanks God, for sure. He thanks God. But he immediately turns the ten- the, his attention to himself. First, about what he isn't. Uh, let's look at what he isn't. He is not like other people. He is different. He doesn't swindle people. Uh, he doesn't treat others unfairly, unjustly. He doesn't engage in sexual immorality. And he definitely is not like this tax collector. Uh, verse 11, you can just sense hypocrisy. The Pharisee has not even described a single action that would possibly make him worthy to lift up prayers to God or have God answer his prayers, but he's already judged another man's character purely based on his vocation. Doesn't even know the guy. Just knows that that man's a tax collector. He must be a crummy, crummy dude. Let's look at the reasons you know, why, does, why, does, why is he so great? Let's look at his reasons. What does he do? I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. So if you were a Jewish eavesdropper hearing this prayer, it probably would sound pretty noble. It's like, wow, this guy's really devoted. He fasts and he tithes. But as Jesus has demonstrated before, that these external activities that Jesus, uh, that the Pharisees do, they don't help them get to heaven. Um, God told Moses in Leviticus 23 that Israel, the people of Israel, is only supposed to fast one day on Yom Kippur, the day of 
atonement. The day of atonement is one of the most important days, if not the most important day, of the Jewish calendar. Uh, On the day of atonement, the, the high priest would strip himself of all of his priestly robes, put on a sackcloth, and he would cleanse himself, and he would bring an unblemished lamb, and he would cross through the veil that separates the holy place in the temple and the holy of holies. There, the priest would sacrifice the lamb and pour the blood onto the mercy seat of the Ark of the Covenant where the presence of God dwelled. And so this is a picture where atonement must be brought for the nation of Israel. People have sinned and there must be a payment for sins. And so the act of fasting, this one time a year, was tied specifically to the observance of the most important day of the year where God accepts a clean, unblemished sacrifice for the nation. And so fasting was to remind people of their utter dependence upon God for reconciliation, for atonement. Why don't we observe the Day of Atonement today? Well, Jesus has made full atonement for sin as the once and for all sacrificial lamb. That's why we don't fast. We're not commanded to fast. That's why we don't sacrifice lambs. We don't sacrifice grain offerings, so on and so forth. And so for the Pharisee to fast, to say that he fasts twice a week is merely just so he can earn piety points and worse yet, to look good in front of other people while missing the point the, end, the, the point of fasting in the per- first place. And this is just practical, weekly, twice a week hypocrisy. Tithing. What about tithing? Tithing must be good, right? The church, we give tithes, we give offering. There's an offering time during Sunday service. It must be really generous of him to pay tithes. Well, again, in Jewish culture, the tithing system was put into place to help two main groups of people. Um, the first were the Levites, and the second were the poor. And so when back in Exodus, in Deuteronomy, in the Torah, when the land was divided, the tribe of Levi, uh, they didn't get a portion of the land as an inheritance. And so God instituted tithing upon all the other 11 tribes so that they can provide for their 12th tribe who was holy to devote themselves to the service of God. And so the tribe of Levi would be able to live and sustain themselves off of the kindness and generosity of other people. Furthermore, the poor would receive a tithe as well. They would receive a tithe on the third year of the Jewish seven-year calendar cycle. And so all of this tithing was done out of the second greatest commandment, to love your neighbor. Love for neighbor motivated the tithing system. But what does the Pharisee say? He just does it. I pay tithes, all that I get. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't give any reason why. He doesn't make mention of the people that he give it to. He, he just says, like, I, I, do, I do it. I do it. And so if fasting was to help a Jew enter a position of remembrance, dependency, worship before God, and tithing was to bring relief and aid to people, right? 
Do you see how in these two short statements, Jesus is pointing out that this Pharisee has not only twisted the greatest commandment to love God with all his soul, mind, and strength, but he has also twisted the second greatest commandment just purely out to make himself look good. He's completely misinterpreted and misapplied applicatory laws that were supposed to help him obey, observe, remember the greatest and second greatest commandment. The greatest commandment called Jews to love God. Love God with such an energy and fervor, fervor that it takes every ounce of the, and fiber of their being to do so. Similarly with the second greatest commandment. It called Jews to love their neighbors, those within their communities, like the Levites, and even those who are outside of it, like the poor, like the outcasts, like what we read in Luke chapter 4 in which Jesus has come. The Spirit of the Lord has come upon me to preach the good news to the poor and the oppressed. And the Pharisee has just taken it and twisted it and pointed it back to himself. And friends, this is, this is hypocrisy at its finest. And before we move on to the other man, uh, I hope in the back of your mind that you're sensing within yourself that very easily this could be me too. How easy we take and twist for our own well-being. Okay? So let's not be quick to embody the attitude to point the finger and say we're better than this Pharisee. And then we take on the very attitude that the, of the man that Jesus is condemning here. So let's move on. To the original Jewish audience, this, this isn't alarming yet. When they hear this, they're not thinking the same things that you, might, you may be hearing. But let's look at verse 13. But the sweet, sweet conjunction of reversal. The tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so the tax collector evaluated himself, and felt his unworthiness to even look up to heaven. Um, he beat his breast as a physical reminder to himself that he is not a sinner, but the sinner, the only sinner that he knows at that time. He's not paying attention to other people. And he reminds himself that the mere fact of praying to God Almighty should not be possible. Man should not be able to approach the holy throne of God Almighty. And so, quickly, Jesus brings up to the climax of this parable in what the tax collector prays. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. There is no fluff. There's just one simple request for mercy, that God show him kindness, loving kindness, and not hold his guilt accountable to him. And he simply says, he addresses himself with the title that he knows he bears the foremost. Uh, if, you, if you would, allow me to go on a small, small tangent. Um, as I said before in this prayer, uh, 
and the previous one, they come in a package. And because of you know, the similar introductions that Jesus gives, um, it clues in on the package nature of these parables. But there's another theme in the parables that help us see that oh, they're probably connected in some way. And Jesus felt it was important enough to use prayer, the theme of prayer, uh, as a means to drive the messages he wishes to teach in both parables. And so I think we should take a look at that. Um, John Calvin, the French reformer, speaks of where right prayer originates from. Listen to this. Prayer rightly springs from faith, and faith from hearing God's word. He goes on, Calvin goes on, to give four rules of effectual fervent prayer. And here they are. Number one, prayer must be driven by a heartfelt sense of reverence. Prayer must arise from a heartfelt sense of need and repentance. Prayer must yield from a heartfelt sense of humility and trust. And prayer must be grounded by a heartfelt sense of confident hope. And so these are the marks of true prayer that Calvin describes. And so if I were to ask you, between these two men, who demonstrated genuine, true prayer? I'd hope that you'd say the tax collector. And so why? Why do we affirm that the tax collector is the right one before God, not the Pharisee? Luke, uh, Jesus gives the answer, Luke does as well, in the following verse. So verse 14, Jesus concludes his evaluation. I tell you, This man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who exalts, who he who humbles himself will be exalted. It is the tax collector that went home justified. Um, Using courtroom language, as some of you may be familiar with, um, the tax collector is the one who's been deemed righteous before a judge. And so, in Christ-like fashion, Jesus deems what is the norm that people expect to be opposite of what is true in his kingdom. In his kingdom, Jesus values humility above any other virtue. Humility is more than just thinking about yourself and thinking of others more highly than yourself. Humility is more than just um, thinking lowly of yourself. Oh, I just need to, you know, like be soft-spoken and not talk that much and smile and, you know, try not to be awkward. Humility is more than that. Humility is a continuous posture before God. Every sinner must have this posture before God. It's a recognition that God is the sovereign king over everything. He is sovereign and he is in control and he has jurisdiction and oversight over the tiniest molecule. And, and he, from the tiniest molecule to the largest astronomical body. And he even has sovereignty or rule over the human heart, your human heart. This fact should cause fear and trembling because your heart is set against God. Uh, your heart 
rebels against his authority. Your heart is more wicked than you can ever imagine. And God is more holy and righteous than you can ever imagine. And so we have a major problem here. Holiness cannot abide and dwell with wickedness, and vice versa. One must prevail over the other. But who is the sovereign king and lord of the lords here? Is it you? No, it is God. And so God must judge and condemn wickedness. He must condemn sin and cast it out of his presence. Wicked people must die. Sinners must face and feel the full wrath of God. And do not think for a moment that you're inherently good, that you somehow are outside of this category. Your sin must be punished. So if we went back to the courtroom, um, you are the defendant. You're sitting at the defendant's desk. And you are being prosecuted for your crimes. You have sinned against God. You have not loved him with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and all your strength. And you have not loved your neighbor as yourself. And the sentence is death. You will die. This is a very bleak picture. But Jesus, coming back to the text, he says that this man, the tax collector who openly confessed that he was the sinner, that he was guilty. Jesus says he's justified. He's made right. He went home justified. How is this possible? In this case, the tax collector was truly humble. True humility completely admits that you cannot save yourself, that you must need someone to atone for your sin. True humility recognizes that it is Jesus who is that full and complete atonement. It is Jesus who went to the cross. It is Jesus who bore the wrath meant for you. And it is Jesus who died and yet rose, demonstrating that he defeated death, that he has victory over it, and that he is to be trusted, that he is the final sacrificial of lamb who died on behalf of sinners. That is true humility. True humility will cause you to go to Christ. True humility will then breed true faith. The Puritan Thomas Watson says this about true saving faith. He answers the question, why is faith the condition to be made right with God? Why does God require faith? More than any other grace, Listen to this. He says, To exclude all glorying in the creature, faith is a humble grace. If repentance or works were the condition of the covenant, a man would say, It is my righteousness that has saved me. But if it be of faith, where is boasting? Faith fetches all from Christ and gives all the glory to Christ. It is a most humble grace. So in the kingdom of God, it is in humility by faith that this tax collector called out to God to be merciful to him. And in the kingdom of God, it is by, in humility, 
by faith that this tax collector can even boldly ask, approach God, and to show him mercy. He can command God in a sense, be merciful to me, show me mercy, God, do this for me. He can ask God of that. Because if we're true and honest to ourselves, God answers these kinds of prayers. He answers the one, the prayers that are humbly asked out of faith. Utter dependency upon him. Because he is a God who answers prayers and gives good gifts as a response. In the kingdom of God, it is in humility by faith that this tax collector recognized his state before God. Uh, He did not call himself anything else but the sinner. And lastly, it is in the kingdom of God, in this humility and by this faith, that you can be saved. Like the tax collector, you can be saved today. If you do not recognize Jesus as the final sacrificial lamb for your sins, he takes away your sins if you would repent from them and pledge your allegiance, place your faith in, place your trust in. Friend, I implore you to do this today. Do it today while it's still called today. You do not know if tomorrow will happen. Come to Jesus. Call out to him like the tax collector did in humility. And trust. And Jesus says, he, but everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. You will be saved. And to my brothers and sisters, um, honestly, how, how great, how sweet, how wonderful it is to be reminded uh, of how our Lord has saved us. Amen? Um, by way of application, I just want us to be reminded of just two things. May we not ever think so highly of ourselves that just because we have come to Christ and we see ourselves growing and serving here at GOC that, that we're doing all right. You know, like I can, I can coast a little bit. But may we continue to humble ourselves, bow before him, continue asking for mercy, and watch him grant that. Um, and secondly, may we just constantly remind ourselves of what true humility is. It is just an utter dependence on God's mercy and grace. And that in so doing, we run to him um, daily. We run to him to his word, hear what he has to say, We run to him in prayer, that we commune with him, that we speak and talk with him, that we worship him. And so, to close, uh, I just want to look a couple of verses ahead. I'm probably overstepping my bounds a lot, but I think it, the way Luke just crafts his gospel is phenomenal. And the way, the flow, just look at how this section transitions to the next. Verse 15, Jesus rebukes his disciples for rebuking other people, bringing their children to see Jesus. And then he tells them that in the kingdom of God, like we have heard tonight, that it is childlike, humble, dependent faith that is the key into the kingdom. 
And immediately afterwards, as if is just another warning to us all, um, the rich young ruler comes to the scene. And I'm just like, Luke crafted his narrative for a purpose. And so I can only assume that the rich young ruler probably heard, probably if not the tail end of what Jesus was talking about beforehand, at the very least talking about childlike, humble faith inherits the kingdom of God. Just hearing that. But look, look what he asks in verse 18. A ruler questioned him saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus questions him back. Rich young ruler says, I have kept these all from my youth. Verse 22, when Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Rich young ruler can't do it, leaves in despair. And look at what Jesus says in response. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. So the ruler missed the whole point of what Jesus was talking about previously because he asked the, we, we see he asked the wrong question. What shall I do to inherit eternal life? He missed the fact that it's out of humble faith that one enters into the kingdom of God, thereby inheriting eternal life. Friends, let us not forget how important it is to humble ourselves before God and to depend on him for all things. In our lives, this one and the one to come. Let's pray. Father God, we confess to you tonight of just how many times this week we have thought highly of ourselves. We have thought that we are something, that we got this. And yet, Lord, in your word today, you've demonstrated to us and reminded us that how important you value humility, that in your kingdom, humility is the currency in which you operate. And so God, I pray for every one of us here, for those who do not know you, that they would humble themselves and come before you and confess Jesus with their lips and believe in their hearts that you are Lord and Savior of their souls. And for us who has treasured Christ in our hearts, who see him as our great advocate before the Father, who see him as precious, worthy giving up of everything to follow him. May we not graduate from humility. May we not think so highly of ourselves or trust in ourselves. And definitely, Lord, help us to love others and see and believe and hope and love in all of them. In your son's precious name we pray.